This is Our American Stories. And the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the New World began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting family and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? As I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things, at least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who 
heaven. Hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, 
and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean. This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, People were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found a bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. 
This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves, after our tears, with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then, with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America, on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky Speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the Speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, It was judged that the Speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage. 
upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stock-and-bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See them quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness. 
and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the owls! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, uh, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head. And it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Oceanus Hopkins. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. 
but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. 
Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's it's we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, 
These first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, 
that day of thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time in the holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety, they stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home For the holidays you And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon but it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. 
and we share it with you here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you powerful redemption stories of Americans who face crisis in their lives and how they're able to get through it. We've previously brought you energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn's story of losing his two-year-old granddaughter Mariah and how he dealt with that unthinkable tragedy. And today, Tim brings us an even more personal story about a crisis of his own creation. Because of a massive failure that I had like 20 years ago now, and I was in a deep, deep, dark valley looking for answers. You know, when you're in a deep valley, one of the main reasons you want to know is why did this happen? What is this about? How could a loving God let me go through this? You know, and now to some extent, it's not that different than when the child's in the crib at nine o'clock and you're still up and they want to know, how could you make me do this? (laughs) Okay. But that's hard to think that way when you're in a deep, dark valley, right? So I had a basically, I guess, a failure in business. And it it was a failure in a sense. It wasn't an economic failure. It was more of a, um, I didn't get my way failure. And in the course of that, things were said. And, you know, usually when you get criticized, you just brush it off. And, and it was a criticism, really, I'd had many times. Uh, you know, basically, the criticism boiled down to you're arrogant and you stomp on people. So, interestingly enough, these days, when they look for CEOs, one of the characteristics they look for is arrogance as a positive thing. Okay? Now, I understand why that is, because when you're arrogant, you think you know everything, and it actually does pave the way for you to say, I know I can get that done and just go get it done. The arrogance is actually a byproduct of the tendency to just go get stuff done, and the arrogance develops because you kind of consider everybody else doesn't know what they're doing because you know how to get stuff done, okay? So it's not actually the arrogance they're after, I don't think. It's the that's a, a sign that you're a get-it-done person. And, and that's what I am. I'm really good at getting things done. But this time it stuck. And, you know, I'm a very, I'm a very devout believer, and I take very seriously the, you know, love your neighbors yourself command. So because I had to face, well, okay, I get stuff done, but am I actually loving my neighbor? And I had to really think about that and come to the point of saying, no, you know, I am, I'm getting stuff done, but I'm not seeking their best interest. I'm seeking mine. And coming to grips with that reality 
So the circumstances didn't matter at the end of the day. It was this internal realization that was the source of the pain. And there's a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where a boy turns into a dragon. And this boy is a really rotten kid. I mean, he's a everybody can't stand him. He's spoiled. He's a spoiled brat. He turns into a dragon, which is like a physical manifestation of being a spoiled brat, right? Dragons are all about themselves. And in the course of that, he kind of discovers that, well, gosh, you know, being helpful to other people is actually a better deal. And then comes a time where the ship's about to leave. He's going to be left. And Aslan, the Christ figure, who's a form of a lion, comes to him and says, hey, do you want to be a boy again? And yeah, because he starts to scratch his dragon flesh off. And then the Aslan figure comes and says, you can't get all that off yourself. I got to get it. And takes his claws and just rips him apart. And Eustace is the boy's name. He comes out like a new person. Well, that's what it felt like to me. I went through two years of depression. And I never went, I never had diagnosed and stuff, but I had some people tell me on retrospect that the reason why you were sleepy in the afternoon, the reason why you lost your emotional fire, you were actually depressed. I was depressed because I was coming to grips with who I am. And I came to understand that, you know, when when the Galatians 5 says the spirit's lust against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit, and these two are at enemies with one another. There's actually three people in a boxing ring inside of me going to war, you know, two, two warring factions and a referee, and I'm the referee deciding who wins each bout. And I had always looked at it like there's two. There's me and there's the spirit, and I'm always negotiating with the spirit of, you know, how, how much do I have to do to make you okay? But really, my old self, you know, was the part that was negotiating that. And, and I would judge myself as okay as compared to other people, which made me a Pharisee, you know. And, and actually having to say, no, I'm not this person. And Romans 7 says, there's nothing good dwelling me in my flesh, you know. And saying, that thing, that thing I've historically thought of myself, it's rotten and bad and it's never going to get any better. And actually, it was, it was a death. I had to separate from myself from that and say, I am actually a different thing than that thing. I'm actually the referee in the ring, and I'm choosing on an ongoing basis which to follow. So I still have all the, you know, horrific thoughts and everything else. That thing's still there. I try to think of it like that movie, The Beautiful Mind, where the guy has the three, you know, and, and he just ignores them. Mm-hmm. They're always there, but he ignore. I try to make that like, oh, yeah, I, I know those thoughts came from you, but I don't have to do anything up for that. So that was this massive failure that I have. And during that time, I went to Job. Because of the story of Job, it gave me hope. My very being is largely shaped by Job. I I think of him as like my best friend. And when we come back, we'll continue with Tim Dunn's story, walking away from that old self and, of course, making choices to help create a better version of himself. And Tim struggles well. These are all of our struggles. Tim, a devout Christian, using the Bible as his source, and so many Americans do. And even if you don't, so much to learn here from this story. When we come back, more of Tim Dunn's story. And by the way, his book, Yellow Balloons, well, you can get it at timdunn.org. That's timdunn.org. It's a terrific read and will help any family getting through tough circumstances and any person 
trying to overcome some obstacles of their own, especially the self-created kind. Tim Dunn's story continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Tim Dunn's story. He's an energy entrepreneur who's telling us, of all things, the story of Job and how it helped shape and correct his own walk in life. Here's the story of Job. So Job is an ancient billionaire. He's got trucking interests, camels, thousand camels, so that's like a trucking line. He's a trading company, you know, because that's what they use camels for. They were on caravan. So he's probably a banker, too, because if you're in trade, you're banking. He's a banking conglomerate. He's got these massive farming interests. He's got an enormous number of donkeys. So he's, let's call it the cab. He's Uber. You know, he's got the Uber service. Uh, so he's an ancient billionaire. And the greatest man of the East, the Bible calls him. And he also had this giant family, which is also a huge blessing back in those days. And he's a super devout guy. He, he's the guy that everybody calls for advice when the city council meets, which back in those days they met in the gates. And then Job, it says, he says, they used to always call me in the gates. So Job is the man. That's the hero. He's, he's introduced to us. Then the next scene goes to heaven. Now, interestingly enough, in heaven are two characters, God and Satan. So... Satan's running around, and God sees him. He says, hey, hey, Satan. God calls Satan over. And he says, yeah, what? He says, have you seen Job, my servant Job? Satan says, yeah, what of it? He said, well, you know, he makes you look so bad. You know, you were supposed to be like that, and you were so full of yourself that I fired you. Well, that's what you were supposed to look like. You're losing. You're losing. I took a a lowly guy that was so much inferior to you and he's making you look so bad you are I'm dissing you right here okay you're a failure so you know that that's trash talk right and Satan comes back and he says wow that look 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 this this isn't making me look bad this guy is just a shrewd businessman okay he knows how to deal with you as a transaction okay he gives you what you want you give him what he wants. What's so righteous about that? I mean, you you pay good. He understands you pay good. You got good goodies. You get what you want. There's nothing righteous about this. If you let me ruin him, you'd see. So God says, "Okay, I tell you what." I'm, and and he, this is an important part too. Satan says, "Well, you you won't let me touch him. You put a wall around him. Okay, so you you give me this protection. You got all this stuff. You know, uh, no 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 wonder." So he says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll take the wall down. You can go do whatever you're going to do. Just don't touch his person. So Satan, you can kind of hear Satan, yeah, you know, I got, I got, I, I, this, what's this? What's, what's going to happen? 
So Satan goes down and he orchestrates for every business to go bankrupt all on the same day. They all go down and all the kids die. The only ones left is the wife. And then one employee from each business is left to come and tell him the news. He gets it all at once. So there's no question that's supernatural, right? He wants to make sure Job gets the point, right? And here's what Job does. The Bible says he worships. And so he says, look, I was naked when I was born. I'm naked again. If I can't accept bad from the Lord, then I really believe in God. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Pretty amazing. So now you go to scene two in heaven. So now Satan's back again. Once again, God sees Satan and God says, hey, Satan, come over here. You know that trash talk you had before? You're losing again, okay? See, see what he did? He worshiped me. He, you are so losing at this point in time. You are donsky. And Satan says, ah, well, what, what? And by the way, Satan is actually a job title. It means accuser. His real name's Lucifer. He goes by. So he says, well, yeah, but look, you wouldn't let me touch him. Everybody give whatever they have for their skin, you know, their health. Just let me touch him. Then you see what happens. And God says something real interesting right there that you have to, you have to grab onto to really get this story. He says, have you seen Job's reaction and how righteous he is, although you incited me to ruin him without cause? So God didn't do one thing negative to Job, but he authorized it. He opened the gate. He unlocked the door. And God takes responsibility for it. You can't lose that, okay? Hang on to that because we're going to have to ask the question, why would a loving God let that happen, right? You can't answer that question. You don't understand this story. Okay, so then Satan goes down and Job has his skin cancer, you know, and he's, he's sitting there scraping everything off. And now his wife comes and we find out why his wife didn't die. And she says, why do you still keep your integrity? Just curse God and die. Nice, nice uh, little uh, cherry on the top there, yeah. And so Job turns to his wife and, you know, he's in pain. He's had all this loss. And he says to his wife, this is the most unbelievable part of the whole story, I think. He says, you speak as a foolish woman. He, he doesn't. He won't even. He won't even say anything negative reaction to his wife. At, at the, even in the darkest depths, you speak like a fool. You're better than this, honey. You you don't want to say things that are wrong like this. You know we're not going to accept things from God. You don't speak like a foolish person. You're not a foolish person. Unbelievable. This guy. I mean, he's he's ringing all the bells. He's such an amazing guy. So. Then Job's three friends show up. Now, it's pretty, pretty common to say these friends are not friends. Baloney. Look, these guys come from a long distance. They sit with Job for seven days without saying a single word. Would you do that? Would you care? Would you do? I wouldn't do that. In the ancient Near East, it was like the custom that the aggrieved speaks first. They sit there seven days. And finally, Job starts talking. And then most of the rest of the book is this dialogue. Okay, and it amounts to this. The three friends say, look, Job, you, you, you had everything, right? You must have done something wrong. God would not have done this to you 
if you hadn't done something wrong. You just got to repent. And then God will give you everything back. It's just it's it's pretty plain, it's pretty simple. You you didn't have enough faith. You you, you made a mistake, you sinned, something's wrong. Just make it right and God'll put it back. Because God God's not unjust. And if you didn't do something wrong, it would be unjust for God to do this. Some version of that. And Job's response is always the same. He says, I'm a man of integrity. If I were to admit I did something that I didn't do, that'd be like just taking a plea just to get something from God. I'm not going to do that. If I knew something, I'd do it, okay? But I don't have anything. I'm I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do just for some benefit. I actually don't think that speaks well of God, okay? So they're having this debate. Now, at the end of the book, God tells us his thought about this. The head of the three friends is a guy named Eliphaz. And God says this at the end. He says to Job, I'm really ticked at Eliphaz and his two friends because they did not speak well of me like you did. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? Eliphaz and his two friends, God doesn't get mad at them because of what they said about Job. He's mad at them because of what they said about him. And you can read what Eliphaz and his two friends says. You know, God is almighty and God is righteous. and God, It all sounds great. But here was their fundamental belief about God. If you do what God wants, you will get back what you want. Okay. Now, does that sound like anybody else in the story? It's exactly the same view that Satan claimed. Okay. Now, I don't doubt that these three guys are believing guys and everything. Lots of us have wrong views about God. But here's the overriding message of Job. God is not a cosmic vending machine. He's not transactional. Okay. There is no price for the things on the shelf that you want. And it's good. It's good that that's the case because we don't know what we want as well as God does. And what great storytelling about a character that almost everybody in the world's heard of, a whole bunch of people believe in, and lots more have written about. And when we come back, we continue with Tim Dunn, the story of Job, and in the end, the story of a character that helped shape and straighten Tim Dunn's walk and so many others around America and around the world. Tim Dunn's story of Job, his own story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Tim Dunn's remarkable telling of the story of Job. And this happened right here in our studio in Oxford, Mississippi. We're about an hour south of Memphis, and Tim had come in to tell the story of the loss of his granddaughter. And of course, one thing led to another, and Tim was soon telling the story of his own personal demons and of the story of this great biblical character that everybody knows. Let's continue where we last left off. Job asked for an audience. He says, you know, if I could explain to God what he's missing here, okay, if I could explain to God how he should look at these things, then this wouldn't be happening to me. God's righteous. He's powerful. He can do whatever he wants to. I accept it completely, but he's missing something. And if I had my day in court, I would explain myself and all this would go away. Now, interestingly enough, God does not blame Job one bit for that. But now the story concludes and he gets his day in court. And God actually appears to him, he says, in a whirlwind. Now, you'd think at this point, I mean, Job doesn't know God's bragging on him up in heaven, right? He's in the moment, he just knows his life is falling apart. So now God shows up. You'd think at this point he would at least say, hey, you're doing awesome. No, no, he doesn't. He says, listen, you asked for your day in court. You got it. And you can ask me all the questions you want, but I'm going first. So listen, how about, where were you when I made the universe? Do, tell me what's in the blueprint. Okay, tell, just tell me how, like, the reproductive system. How did you design that, for example, you know? Uh, how about rain, like the water cycle? How do, how do all these planets like hang in the space? And he just goes into all this physics of the universe. And then Job says, man, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't I ask. I open my mouth. I'm not finished, God says. Okay. Let me ask you about these two, just two simple beasts, two brutes, you know, Behemoth and Leviathan. Okay. Can you tame them? Can you capture them? No, I didn't think so. Okay. You wouldn't want to mess with them, right? They're just dumb beasts that I made. Okay. If you can't even tame dumb beasts, why would you think you could tame me? I made all of them, right? So that doesn't really make any sense, does it? And so Job says two things. He says, I realize I'm vile. Now, I realize I'm vile. Now think about this. Job was the most righteous guy in the whole earth. God pronounced him righteous. But he realized his vile. You know, another way to translate that Hebrew word, small. And what he realizes is, I'm not near what I thought I was because I was comparing myself to all these other people. I'm the greatest of all men. But this is God. Okay, and that's number one. And the other thing he says, now that I see you, I just repent. I didn't really know who you were. And what Job realizes is, God's not a transactional God. He's not far away. God is close. So I saw that and I realized, oh, I'm vile. That's what I'm going through. I realize I am this jerk, you know, that stomps on people for my own good. And I'm not really seeking the best interests of others. Now, it's fine to stomp on people when they need to be stomped on, right? You got to fire somebody for the good of the company. That's okay. But that's also for their good. It's not just because you can. It's because it's not good to enable somebody to do something that's bad. But 
in my case, I was doing it for me. That's a fundamental problem. So, okay, I can identify with Job. I'm vile. That's the fundamental thing I was wrestling with. But then he does this thing of, I see you, and now I know you. I thought I knew you, but now I really know who you are. And that's when God says, okay, all done. All right, trial over. Let's give the guy double everything just to make sure everybody that's watching this understands how great a guy I think this is. This is the best guy ever. So then I grappled with two big questions. One is, well, why would a loving God allow this to happen to Job? And that question wasn't that hard. It seemed pretty clear Job got to know God. And so, obviously, knowing God is one of the greatest rewards of this life. Okay, So, okay, that's pretty easy. But then the really hard question, I grappled with this for a long time, was... Why does it have to be this way? Why not just let us live a really comfortable life, go to heaven, go to Knowing God 101, have God tell of all this stuff. He probably has a great funny monologue and then a great story. And then, you know, uh, why not learn that way? And a couple of verses kind of popped out at me. One is Ephesians 3.10, and it says, The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to a group of beings. And you'd think it'd be, well, revealed to believers or unbelievers or something like that. Here's what it says. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, the angels, the demons. They're watching. There's a verse in 1 Peter that says the angels are longing to understand They're stooping down, craning their necks, trying to understand what it is we're getting to understand. And you say, well, wait a minute. So they're understanding God by watching us. We haven't even been here this long. I mean, you got eons of history before human race started with the angels. They're in the presence of God. Job started off with Satan in heaven, right? They see him firsthand. They interact with him firsthand. They haven't just been through Knowing God 101, they've been through PhD. So why is it that all these eons of time, they're watching us to understand about God? How can that be? And here's what dawned on me. They can't know God by faith. They can't. Because you can't have faith in what you see. That's not faith. That's sight. Faith is believing something you can't see. And 1 Corinthians says, there's three great things, faith, hope, and love. And only one will remain, love. And why is that? Because when we get to the other side in the new earth, we will have and we will see. You can't hope for what you have. You can't hope for a Christmas present in New Year's because you already have it. You just opened it, right? You can't believe in something that you see. So... Faith and hope are going to be gone. And there's something about knowing God by faith and through hope that is so spectacular that the angels are trying to understand and can. So here's what I came to. The reason why God let his favorite guy be ruined, which he took responsibility for, the reason he did that is because Job is such a great guy that God didn't want him to miss out on one 
speck of opportunity to know him by faith. And when he did, he would be way better off. Now, what we don't know is how could that be better off for Job's kids? Because God doesn't tell us their stories. I know that I'm going through this story with Mariah, I'm better off. But I can't explain how Mariah is. If knowing God by faith is such a big deal, why would a two-year-old passing that quickly be good for Mariah? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But God doesn't tell us everybody else's stories. He tells us our story. And thanks to Tim Dunn for that storytelling, sharing his own life, the tragedy that befell his family, and how it brought the family closer together. That was the loss of his granddaughter, Mariah. And then, of course, his own, well, his own shortcomings and all the pain he caused all by himself. His own creation, the kind that we all, we all can do in our lives and bring to our lives. Tim Dunn's story, Job's story, here on Our American Stories. And send your stories, your favorite character in a book that led you to a different path. It could be the Bible, it could be, well, whatever. Send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Share it with us. We'll put it right back up on the air and let everybody hear it. Again, Tim Dunn's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And in this next feature, you're about to hear the story of a book considered by many to be second only to the Bible in book sales. It was a book in almost every American household, and yet you may never have heard of it. On this National Bible Week, which was declared by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1941, we celebrate the Pilgrim's Progress. In the year 1676, a poor tinker named John Bunyan was imprisoned in Bedford Jail. While he was there, he started to write one of the most famous books in the English language. And everything is told as if it happened in a dream. I dreamed, he says, that I saw a man with a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. As he read the book, he began to weep. Then, in a lamentable voice, he cried out, What shall I do to be saved? For he lived in the city of destruction, which he learnt from his book, was doomed to be burnt with fire from heaven, and everyone who lived there would perish in the flames. The Pilgrim's Progress is a spiritual allegory that follows the path of Christian, an everyman character weighed down by his burden of sin. He leaves the city of destruction and learns that nothing can remove his burden other than the cross of Christ. The over three centuries old novel 
begins behind bars. Its author, John Bunyan, opens with a sentence of luminous simplicity that has the haunting compulsion of the hook in a great melody. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. A den is a prison. You see, Charles II, the King of England, passed a law forbidding people to preach unless they had a license from the state. But you couldn't get a license unless you agreed with the tax-supported Anglican Church. And Bunyan certainly didn't. On one such occasion, he was asked to stop preaching, and he would be set free. He replied, If you release me today, I will preach tomorrow. Those now famous words led to a nearly 12-year imprisonment for unlawful preaching. It was during this time that he began to pen his classic work. Published in February of 1678, it quickly became one of the most popular stories of all time. Over 100,000 copies were sold within his lifetime alone. And today, with 250 million copies sold, it is one of the most widespread books in existence. It is a book every American had been exposed to until the last few decades. It has been translated into over 200 languages, and it has never been out of print. As with everything in this story, there is no hiding the truth about who the characters are and what they want with the protagonist. For example, Christian encounters people named piety, simple, sloth, presumption, faithful, talkative, crafty, or little faith. And the readers see each character live up to its name. And throughout the story, Christian is being overcome by his burden of sin, which is literally a massive Santa-sized pack on his back that he is incapable of delivering himself from. Pilgrim continued upon his way as the enemy of his soul increased his efforts against the traveler. On his way to the celestial city, Christian is diverted by the secular ethics of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. How rude of me. My name is Wiseman, Worldly Wiseman. You, of course, will have heard of my family. We are high stock, we are, if I do say so. Oh, yes, yes. Ask us anything, anything you like, and you will find the answer. Who urges him to lead a practical, happy existence apart from Christ. The evangelist. Ha! Dullards, the whole lot of them. They are pilgrim. Dullards, dullards. His way, utter foolishness. He instead encourages Christian... I want to help you. ...to seek deliverance from his burden through law and rule-keeping. I perceive you are a religious man, which is good. Good, very good. The world needs more religious people. It does, Pilgrim, it does. With the help of Mr. Legality and his son, Civility, from the village of Morality. Mr. Legality will show you how to be rid of that burden of yours. Evangelist meets the wayward Christian and shows him that Mr. Worldly Wise Man, Mr. Legality, and his son, Civility, are false guides, descended from slaves who look to enslave other would-be pilgrims. When Christians unto carnal men give ear, out of their way they go and pay for it dear. 
For master worldly wise man can but show a saint the way to bondage and to woe. Then as Christian walks along the wall of salvation, he sees Christ's tomb and cross. At this vision his burden falls to the ground. The journey continues along a road filled with monsters and spiritual terrors. Christian confronts such emblematic characters as giant despair, ignorance, and the demons of the valley of the shadow of death. Often disguised as something that would help him, evil continues to accompany Christian on his journey, but friends hopeful and faithful also join him. The two enter the wicked town of Vanity and visit its famous fair, called Vanity Fair, which lasts year-round. Indeed, there are stalls where every foolish trifle in the world is up for sale. In addition, you could buy titles, and honours, and preferments to high office, and vain pleasures, and empty delights of every kind. It is an institution of long-standing, artfully set up by the Prince of the Demons, Beelzebub himself, in a place through which all who are pilgrims and strangers in this world must pass when going to the Celestial City. Many, it is feared, get no further on their way. They resist temptation and are mocked by the townspeople. Why aren't you buying our merchandise? Buy, buy, buy. Eventually, the citizens of Vanity imprison Christian and Faithful for mocking their local religion. Faithful defends himself at his trial and is executed, rising to heaven after death. But Christian escapes and continues his journey. With his new companion, Hopeful, they vanquish many enemies before arriving at the Celestial City with the line that still reverberates through the English literary tradition. So he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. There's no book in English apart from the Bible to equal Bunyan's masterpiece for the range of its readership or its influence on writers as diverse as William Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Nathaniel Hawthorne, E. E. Cummings, Mark Twain, C.S. Lewis, John Steinbeck, and even Enid Blyton. Huckleberry Finn speaks for many readers when, recalling his Mississippi education, he says, There were some books, too, piled up perfectly exact on each corner of the table. One was a big family Bible full of pictures. One was Pilgrim's Progress, about a man that left his family. It didn't say why. I read considerable in it now and then. The statements was interesting, but tough. The Pilgrim's Progress is likely one of the greatest works of literary allegory that exists. I realize how bold that statement might be, but one only reads the book to find the truth steeped in that boldness. In Hollywood terms, the novel has a perfect arc. While Pilgrim's Progress charts the arc of the Christian journey, it's not limited to the Christian experience. Truly the brilliance of John Bunyan is realized in his astute understanding and the following portrayal of the human journey and condition as seen through Christian's eyes. 
Bunyan had a wonderful ear for the rhythms of colloquial speech, and his allegorical characters come to life in dialogue that never fails to advance the narrative. Story is one thing. The simple clarity and beauty of Bunyan's prose is something else. Braided together, style and content unite to make The Pilgrim's Progress a timeless classic. Great job, as always, Greg, on that. And thanks to the great folks at the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education for sponsoring this National Bible Week series. And by the way, they've designed a terrific curriculum for schools called Wisdom Literature from the Bible. And they also have had a book out for some time now called The Bible and Its Influence, which is in 650 schools in states across this country. And to learn more, go to teachthebibleinschools.org teachthebibleinschools.org because to not understand the Bible is to not understand, well, Western literature or Western civilization itself. Again, National Bible Week, all week long, Pilgrim's Progress, its story here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 